You're listening to Framework, where we dig into the research, planning, and building that goes into bringing products to market. I'm Rob Hayes. And I'm Tom Creighton. And today we're talking with Justin Jackson, who is the co-founder of the podcasting hosting and analytics platform, Transistor, and host of the Build Your SaaS podcast. We'll discuss building tools for creator communities like podcasters and doing it as an independent, non-venture-backed SaaS business. We wanted to talk with Justin for a couple of reasons. Justin is one of the most recognizable faces in the independent creator community on Twitter, and he manages to do more than just register a domain for every project idea he has, like some of the hosts of this podcast. He actually builds them and helps other indie creators do the same. And as podcasters ourselves, we're excited by the idea of focusing on this community of creators to provide tools to create better content and lower the barrier to entry. Justin, can you give us a short intro to yourself and what Transistor is all about for those people who aren't familiar with it? Yeah, I mean that was a really nice intro you just did. I don't know if I could, I don't know if I could, <laughs> you know, live up to that. I'm 40 years old. I just turned 40 a couple months ago. And Congratulations. Live in British Columbia. Thank you. And yeah, I've been doing kind of business stuff my whole life, but went independent from consulting in 2016. And then early 2018, John Buddha and I teamed up to work on Transistor, which is podcast hosting and analytics. So every podcast you've ever pushed play on in Apple Podcasts or Overcast or whatever is hosted somewhere. And uh, that's the part that we do. Awesome. And so when you guys got going on this in 2018, can you give us a sense of what the software landscape looked like for podcasting back then? I, I, I imagine it's evolved a ton in the last two years, but uh, how much tooling was in the space when you got going and, and where was it focused in the, the workflow of a podcaster? Yeah. So I've been podcasting since 2012 and I met John at this festival in Portland called XOXO in 2014. And at the time, John was working on another platform called Simplecast. Hmm. And so he, I was self-hosting my show at the time. I had like WordPress and a bunch of plugins and Amazon, you know, AWS. I, I was kind of self-hosting it and I thought, <laughs> thought it would save me money. And it ended up just actually costing me more money and once you added up WordPress hosting and AWS and all the plugins I needed to make it work. And so John said, Hey, why don't you come over to Simplecast? So I did. And, you know, fast forward, we stayed in touch. John, you know, stopped working on Simplecast for a while and he was working for Cards Against Humanity and they wanted to launch a new show. And so they said, Hey, what well, we're thinking about using, you know, they were looking at the platforms that were out there. And John said, You know, I, I think I could build something better than what's out there. So Libsyn is kind of the leader, you know, they have the most customers. Well, Anchor technically has the most users, but in the, the paid hosting section, Libsyn is the leader. And it's, I mean, it's fine. They're, they've been around for a long time. They've done a lot of good things for podcasting, but it's pretty old and crusty, you know? Mm. The, the, the UI is, hasn't been updated in a while. And, you know, we were both product people and we just felt like we had something to offer at the time. You know, we could, we wanted to create a tool that was super simple and didn't have a lot of, you know, extra bells and whistles. And yeah, so, and we also recognized at the time that there was this growing wave of interest in podcasting. So for years, 
<laughs> you know, I would, I'd have people approach me saying, oh, I'm thinking about building a tool for podcasters. And I would always say, ah, I don't know if it's a good idea. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of podcasters are pretty, were pretty DIY for a long time. It was, it was like having a ham radio station, you know, mm. yeah. people in their basement putting together their own equipment and their own workflows. And so the timing for a long time didn't seem right. But around 2017, I noticed there was kind of a shift in the tide. And not only did I personally know a lot of people who had podcasts, but you know, every week the New York Times had a new piece on podcasting. There was Serial, there was Gimlet. Mm-hmm. And then also companies for the first time were investing in the medium. They were building little podcast studios and starting shows. And so I don't think we would have started it or I wouldn't I wouldn't have been interested unless I could see this kind of swell of demand that was increasing. And as I was looking at that, I felt like, okay, this would be a good time to team up with John and maybe actually turn this into a business as opposed to, you know, just an internal tool for Cards Against Humanity. So when you were chatting with John, either, you know, at XOXO or shortly thereafter, how far along was was sort of this core idea of, of Transistor? So, I mean, the timeline, you probably get two different stories if you talk to John or myself. <laughs> The way I remember it is we ha- we were in the Slack together from mm-hmm. uh, a previous project that never took off. And, you know, we just stayed in touch and we were sharing what we were working on. And sometime in 2017, he was saying, you know, I'm thinking about building a new podcast hosting platform for Cards Against Humanity. And I was looking for a new project to work on. And I've been thinking a lot about the market and how the market you're in really determines most of your growth. I'd become friends with this fellow named Adam Wathen, who uh, he's the co-creator of Tailwind CSS, which is kind of Mm -hmm. taking over the web, web design front end landscape right now. And I just seen him launch a series of products for initially into the Laravel community, which is this big programming framework, and just the amount of momentum in that market mm-hmm. and the amount of kind of hunger for you know the different things he was launching, it really showed me that, wow, like if you have a market that's demonstrated their demand for something, like they're lining up for you know product after product, that, that that's a lot different than launching something for you know, a market that you know just kind of wants something or is maybe too small. And so there's all these check boxes I was looking for. Is there, is this market sufficiently large? Is there a growing tide of demand for something? How is that demand demonstrated in real life? Is there evidence that you know, people are more people are getting into podcasting and that there is, you know, an opportunity to get into the market. And as I was, you know, thinking and reflecting on all these things and John's like, hey, you know, I'm thinking about doing another podcast hosting thing. I was like, oh, my God, like this aligns for me personally. It aligns in so many ways. I could see the market demand. I've been tracking that since 2012. Mm-hmm. I was in every podcaster's forum. I was 
you know, paying for paid private newsletters for podcasters. I was in it and I, I could see that the tide was shifting. And then for me personally, the opportunity had a lot of founder market fit. And I could just see in my mind that I had something to offer in a partnership. And so uh, I was the one that pitched him on the idea of us working together mm -hmm. and launching it together and being, yeah, d doing it together as a business. And John was not super, uh, <laughs> he wasn't <laughs> like super enthusiastic right away, partly because he'd been burned in the past with partnerships and he had a pretty good gig where he was, you know, he was comfortable, but he's a thinker and he went away for a couple of weeks and thought about it and then came back and said, yeah, let's do it. And so we signed our partnership agreement and kind of modified all of the incorporation documents and everything probably around February of 2018. And he's still here three years later. So <laughs> yeah. he, he, he doesn't yet regret the decision. That's great. I mean, there's definitely days where he regrets, for sure. But uh, in the big picture, yeah, yeah. I mean, we feel, oh, it's it's honestly every single day in Slack, or not every single day, but frequently, him and I are just like, I can't believe where we're at. Mm -hmm. Especially because even in a good market, things feel like they start slow, mm -hmm. and so. We were, you know, in the beginning, I mean, there were definitely some growing pains. And now it just, it's definitely surpassed our kind of minimum viable dream. <laughs> yeah. You know, like we had a minimum viable kind of benchmark we wanted to hit. And I think we said, you know, $20,000 a month in recurring revenue would be kind of default alive. And then at 50,000 monthly recurring revenue, that would be a pretty good business. And we've, we've passed both of those benchmarks. And so now, yeah, it's just, it's a trip. Uh, to be here. <laughs> it's it's funny because you've got you've got the the podcast, the Build Your SaaS podcast that's kind of evolved or, or run in, in uh, parallel with the business itself. And I, I went spent the weekend just going through kind of episodes from start to finish, just cherry picking along the way. And it's like, it's like watching the business and fast forward because every t every episode, there's a mention of like where you're at MRR. Uh, yeah. what the problems you're focused on and the the problems get kind of higher level big picture every podcast you move further into the future the MRR accelerates it's uh it's it's pretty fun to watch that that business development on on fast forward there yeah to have that archive is pretty yeah it's pretty dope i mean really to be able to look back and again if if my story evolves too much uh, from the truth, we have this uh, <laughs> this canon of truth we can go back to. Um, I want to touch on the what what you said around you know you, you felt the that that groundswell of of interest, the audience growth, the the creator growth on around podcasting when you were batting around the idea in 2018. So you know that gave you an indication of where the market was. How did you kind of settle in on the problem space of of hosting and and analytics as your kind of entry point into building software for that that community. Yeah, I think the answer would be different for John. I think John, you know, he had built it before and he had some product intuition that he wanted to, you know, like he wanted to improve things that he'd 
done before. And in his case, there was demonstrated demand because his employer was looking for a solution. On my side, I was just seeing like, there's some things that are kind of the main course of a meal that everybody gets, you know, like if you're starting a business, everybody mm -hmm. needs to get podcast, I mean, uh, website hosting. Mm -hmm. And most people, you know, you'll sign up for a Twitter account, you'll probably get some accounting software, you'll probably get some sort of project management software. And you know, as you go further and further from the main dish, some things are more like side dishes and some things are more like dessert, you know, and side dishes kind of complement the main thing. So maybe you'll get website hosting and then you'll get website analytics on the side. And then maybe, you know, for fun, you might buy a few WordPress plugins that are more like dessert. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to mm -hmm. stretch the metaphor here, but that I just noticed that there was this dynamic and in the category of podcasting, the main thing that everybody needs is hosting and analytics. You need somewhere to put those MP3s and kind of included in that layer is, you know, other things too, like maybe a little website, maybe a little social media landing page, an embeddable player you can put on your, your site and, and a way, of course, a way to generate the RSS feed that you're going to then submit to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And then even there, there's like, oh, well, in terms of the job to be done, like why are people even looking for podcast hosting? It's because they want to get their podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and they don't know how to do that. So the, the, the easier you can make that, whether through the UX or just through good customer support, you know, there's an opportunity there. So I think that that was part of what I was looking at was what's the main thing that everybody needs. And, you know, I, I'd seen I'd interviewed folks uh, on my podcast, like Zencaster, and I'd seen that they had a lot of success doing what they were doing. And the people that were, you know, buying their service were mostly businesses that had a podcast. And so that was kind of interesting to me. But I also saw the technical side of of doing like web recording in a browser is quite complicated. And so if we were gonna bootstrap this, it was like, this is probably a good fit in all of those vectors. Mm, yeah. So you you mentioned as as you were looking at this space and particularly around the time that, that Transistor was starting to come together, you were noticing that it wasn't just individual creators anymore, but like brands, publishers and so on were starting to, to get into the space. Were you trying to serve any one of those segments or really just, as as you said, like satisfy that that basic need for for the main dish? Yeah. So I think initially I, I believed this this startup mantra that, you know, you need to choose a niche. And so I had developed a relationship with Jason Cohen, the founder of WP Engine. And I was like, oh, this is perfect because Jason Cohen offered this kind of premium WordPress hosting service to businesses. That was his whole, that was his niche. You know, he's not going to be for hobbyists. He's not going to be for bloggers. This is going to be, if you're a business and you need a WordPress site, we're going to offer it to you. And so our initial positioning was podcast hosting for brands and businesses. And we quickly discovered that that was hurting us more than it was helping partly because podcasting is just a lot smaller 
but also because the people who are starting to podcast, uh, you know, some a lot of them don't see themselves as brands or businesses. One of the most popular shows on Transistor is is uh, Not Overthinking, which was started by these two brothers, and they had a pretty big following on YouTube and Twitter beforehand. And I think it was Ali messaged me and said, "Hey, just so you know, I ended up signing up, but." Uh, your messaging almost turned me off. Like I'm mm. a YouTuber and mm-hmm. you said brands are businesses. And then I got into the product and it's like, there's, n- there's nothing about this product. It's completely agnostic. Yeah. So I've changed my thinking on that quite a bit. The most interesting thing to me now about a category is not like what niche is this for it, but rather what do they search for when they when they look go to google to find a solution what are they searching for and in our case it's just podcast hosting that's what or how do i get my podcast on apple podcasts they these are these are people that don't kind of it'd be difficult to categorize them as an audience or a niche they're just people who want a podcast and some of them work for businesses some of them are just diyers in their basement there's a whole spectrum of people and what's more interesting or important in our case is what are they trying to do? What are they looking for? Podcast hosting, hosting for mm-hmm. my podcast, get my podcast on iTunes. That's all they care about. It doesn't, they're, you know, whatever characteristics we would assign to that group aren't as important. So within our customer base, we definitely have, you know, some niches. Like I have a lot of, programmers and you know startup people starting podcasts we have a lot of bootstrappers starting podcasts but those groups you know when you compare it to our overall customer base which is you know thousands and thousands of people maybe they account for hundreds of accounts but not thousands so yeah there was an evolution there of how many people are looking for podcast hosting and how can we reach them and those were the more important questions then. Who is this specifically for, you know? Yeah. yeah. And so with that that diversity, I guess, in, in the potential kind of podcaster audience, were you able to kind of validate your assumptions or did you actively validate your assumptions or did you just kind of build something to do the validation, you know, build something and release it to do the validation? Yeah. I mean, I had some, like, we both had, kind of fertile ground in our brains, I think, because mm-hmm. we, we'd been, you know, uh, building the tools, doing the, yeah, we've been in podcasting for a long time. And so mm-hmm. we've seen and heard and felt things uh, along the way, both personally and also, you know, I've, I've seen dozens and hundreds or, of podcast threads on Facebook and on Twitter and in conversations at conferences. So there's all this kind of fertile ground inside of us that we were kind of, I think, drawing on, which is the hard part of like trying to deconstruct any sort of success or even how did you get here is I have to somehow communicate like all of the context that John and I brought to the table, which is our, our experiences, our network, the skills we've had, the things we've tried, the experiments we've run. There's like decades of this experience that we were, you know, coming to the table with, which is maybe the advantage that a couple of, 
you know, at the time, late thirties folks had yeah, <laughs> is that we had all this experience that we could bring to the table that maybe we wouldn't have had. Well, I definitely wouldn't have had it, you know, 20 or 25. Yeah. Yeah. So the, I think bringing all that to the table and then mining that as we went along and then, yeah, testing some assumptions. Some of our assumptions were right. Many of our assumptions I feel were right. And some of them, you know, once we kind of went down that path of, for example, we, we explored the idea of doing dynamic ad insertion or dynamic content insertion, which is still something we might do, but we developed this, uh, this process this discovery process called wait and see, which was basically just, you know, we, it was just two of us. And at the beginning we were working on it on the side. And so you could have an idea, which was, Oh, we should do dynamic ad insertion. This is the big thing. in in podcasting and some of our customers are requesting it, like what more proof do you need? And we, we even went to Portland and met up and like, hashed everything out and you know drew out all these plans and then we got home and i said you know it's just like john was stressed out and i i was like well let's just wait and see and we waited and see you know wait and see and then we had some customers that had left because they you know absolutely needed dynamic insertion Mm -hmm. and then a couple months later they came back Mm -hmm. and we're like whoa what's going on here and like, ah, it turns out like our problem wasn't dynamic ad insertion. The problem is <laughs> there's just not that many, there's, there's uh, a lot of demand for advertisers, but there's not as much supply. And maybe that's not the solution for, you know, yeah. the way I want to yeah. monetize my podcast. So that approach I think has actually served us well of wait and see and John definitely has way more of that inclination than I do. I'm <laughs> like, I have a new idea every day and you know, he, he's pretty grumpy about new ideas and that, <laughs> that grumpiness serves us well. <laughs> On that exact topic. I mean, you've, you've mentioned like you've been in podcasting for, for almost a decade and, you know, very much a, a podcast power user or, or power creator leaning on that experience did you make decisions about the product that you were building that you thought would be representative of your of your customer base but it turned out you know you were acting on on a faulty assumption or or it has that wait and see approach sort of served you well in in that department yeah i mean i think a lot of our inclinations are correct i mean I don't know. There's certainly a lot of things I want to change about the products because I'm using it every day. And there's, yeah, there's just certain things that we we put in there and sometimes didn't put a lot of thought into that we could definitely revise and make better. I, I, I mean, the danger I get into is when my experience doesn't match up with a big section of our users Mm -hmm. experience. Mm -hmm. And I, I sometimes have to remember the pain and frustration I had, and even the questions I was asking early in podcasting, that now as kind of a weathered veteran, I'm like, ah, that doesn't matter. Why does that even, you know, why do people even care? And I, I remember, oh, wait a second, that, for example, like the one of the 
quintessential problems in podcasting is distribution. Mm-hmm. To get on all of the apps and the directories and the platforms like Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Google is a giant mess. It really is. <laughs> and, you know, now that I understand it and it's, I understand like this is just the way it is, it's not as big of a pain for me. But I remember when I was starting, I was like super confused, like, okay, what is, how does all this work? You know, <laughs> yeah. like, how, how does a podcast get on Apple Podcasts? And what I need an Apple ID to like create an Apple Podcasts account and then I submit it. Do I have to do that with all of these platforms? And, you know, now Google Podcasts, for example, magically indexes your show and you don't have to submit anything and Spotify requires a submission and then they re-host your audio but they still need the rss feed it's like all of this mess and i like the mess because i really want podcasting to stay open and i want you know for us to continue to use some sort of open platform like rss but i also can i'm not naive in the sense that I I see the threat from Spotify in particular. Yeah. You know, like if if Spotify is becomes the place to listen to podcasts, then you know, it's immaterial for them to create a platform that allows you to you know, edit and record your show and immediately upload it to Spotify and get all these great consumption analytics and have dynamic ad insertion built in. You know, like if I was just getting started out, I don't care about the open podcast ecosystem. I just want my audio to get to as many people as I can and to get that immediate feedback of, oh, wow, I'm live in the Spotify directory yeah. and people are listening and I can see their stats and wow, this is really cool. That is a giant threat for Transistor, but also for the open podcasting ecosystem. Have you seen any material effect of that on your product or on the customer base? Or is that just kind of like an, something looming in the distance? Yeah, it's looming in the distance. I mean, if anyone is listening at Apple Podcasts, I would love to talk to you. Uh, <laughs> the, the behavior we see right now is people sign up, they upload their first episode, and then the first thing they do is submit to Spotify because we have a built-in integration with them. It's automatic. It's a one-click yeah. submission. Whereas Apple Podcasts, you have to go sign up for an Apple ID. If you're a PC user and you've never had an Apple ID, it is a giant, blah, like just, <laughs> it's the worst. You have to have a payment method oh, attached yeah. to your Apple ID. You have to get it verified. And then Apple, it takes five to eight days for Apple to manually review these submissions, you know? And that five to eight days, it used to be 48 hours. It just keeps getting stretched out. So there's... You know, most the 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 magical moment happens when people upload their first show and then submit it to Spotify and see it in the Spotify app on their phone. Mm-hmm. But because Apple is still such a big channel for distribution and people want as many people as possible to hear their show, it's you know we're still that's kind of holding the balance. It's it's holding the tension right now. Yeah, and. We'll, we'll see what happens. I'm hopeful that it'll stay open. And really what would help, I think, the open ecosystem is if Apple just improved their submission process. And then Google 
maybe we'll see what they what happens with them if they gain more prominence then their auto indexing you know might become a standard as well and there's they're also using some tech called PubSub which is super smart it RSS is pretty dumb, right? Like all the clients just sniff RSS feeds all day, multiple times a day, seeing if there's new episodes. But PubSub, you actually send a push event to Google Podcasts and it says, oh, there's a new episode. So instead of just hitting your RSS feed all day, it just waits for the actual push event to okay. you know, update. And so just the just to build on that, points it, it sounds like what you're saying is the risk is maybe you know a- apple's apple's a great distribution channel right now but the friction for creators to get their content there could just kind of see the volume of content on apple atrophy over time and then that would in turn i guess reduce its importance as a distribution channel and that's when you kind of when industry consolidation around the spotify's could happen yeah i mean apple's apple still has a pretty good hedge because the podcast app comes pre-installed on every phone. Yeah. And so, uh, and so much of podcasting and really, I think so much of real, <laughs> of just real world product, like the way, the way products and things get distributed is via word of mouth. Mm-hmm. And so like, you know, you might, someone might hear about podcasting and you may have even done this yourself. Like someone wants to listen to a show and you say, well, do you have an iPhone? And they go, yeah. And you go, okay, well just, search for podcasts in your app, you know, in your apps, there it is, search for the show you want. Okay, now you're listening to podcasts. So there's some a lot of built in strength there, for sure. But on the other side, (laughs) there's this threat of, you know, the easier Spotify makes it, and the more kind of strategic acquisitions they make, like right now, you know, listen on Apple Podcasts is a cultural meme, right? It is something that gets repeated a lot and there's this strength there. But the more that, you know, if, if Spotify buys all of the big shows and people just hear listen on Spotify over and over again, that will become a cultural meme and there will be, you know, some competition there. And yeah, I'm I'm really hoping it doesn't turn out the same way YouTube did uh, because I think ultimately that was bad for creators. As soon as yeah. there's a single distribution channel, the owner of that distribution channel can use that leverage to crush creators. That creators will increasingly compete with each other to get the crumbs off the table. And we've already seen that with YouTube. They've reduced their ad, you know, the, their ad share with creators and in some ways, what what saved them is live streaming on Twitch and other things, because then they had a different distribution channel. But yeah. you can see the effect of this. And I think open is better than closed. We saw it with blogging. We've seen it with email. Even though it's more messy and it's not quite as user-friendly, uh, ultimately for creators and consumers, I think open is better. Just changing gears a little bit, I'd, I'd love to dive into like sort of the, the tactics of, of building the product and the fact that, that you and John have a weekly podcast focused on on basically your business and planning process is, is really interesting. You know, it seems like you're often talking through decision making or, or introducing new ideas. How much of, of that intentionally or otherwise contributes to, to how Transistor evolves? Yeah. The nice thing about having a weekly show with your co-founder is 
it's an opportunity to talk about hairy issues and still be polite. <laughs> so the forced civility. Yeah, because yeah. we know it's being recorded and I mean we always know we can scrub something with editing but generally we're we're in just it, it someone said that like being on a microphone just makes you a better version of yourself. And I do think that's true. It's like, it just heightens you a little bit because there's an element of performance in it. Yeah. And that's really helped us. And that was a, you know, we, we saw uh, Alex Bloomberg do that with startup and talk openly about how, you know, doing the show was a, a form of therapy and planning. And it, it, there's some sort of magic that happens when you're doing that in public. So yeah, there's definitely some things that we talk about for the first time on the podcast. And I think it, it does really help. And then you have this feedback mechanism where listeners can respond. And many of our listeners are our customers as well. And so they can say, oh, you know that thing you were talking about? It's not quite right. You're missing you know, this piece here. Oh, interesting. And so we have a, a feedback loop there that's quite helpful. And sometimes the podcast is the only time we talk in person every week. And it, it, it's almost like built in. It's like if, you know, it, it'd be easy for us to just stay in our little slack hobbit holes and just, you know, <laughs> send each other messages back and forth. And I think that can be bad for just interpersonal dynamics but also in terms of planning, you know, if we have three episodes where it's like, wow, we haven't talked about any product development stuff, probably because we're just kind of coasting, just kind of floating. And maybe we need to, you know, do some planning. So yeah, the, the podcast definitely helps. And uh, we've adopted kind of a loose, loosely adopted Basecamp's shape up process. Mm-hmm. And what I like about it is, first of all, it's just way more calm for us <laughs> instead of feeling this pressure to have like a full backlog. You know, like it felt like I was a product manager for so many years and it felt like a lot of my job was just to make sure there's a big backlog so that developers had something to do. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And now it's like, no, if if we don't have something good to work on, let's just not work on it. You know, like we can do other things. And when something reveals itself as sufficiently important, then let's put it in a Google Doc and just kind of chew on it for a while. Like, okay, here's the thing that we're seeing. You know, let's let's explore the contours of this idea, but we still haven't committed to anything. You know, it's just still kind of just sitting there and it's like, yeah, okay, oh yeah, it's something new. I had a new insight about this. I'll add that to the the Google Doc, but it's not in the backlog. It hasn't become an an item of work. Mm -hmm. And it's only once we've said, you know what, like this thing that we've been thinking about and shaping and, you know, kind of just tracing the contours of, it feels like there's enough here that we should commit to doing the work that's when it goes into, you know, we're, we're using Clubhouse, but you know, the, that's when we translate this document into tasks that we're going to get done. And yeah, that, that process has worked 
pretty good for us so far. This feels like a really great time to take a brief break for a word from our sponsors. Framework is brought to you by Webflow. Webflow's thesis is that designers are used to learning pretty complex software like Sketch, Figma, and so on, but those tools don't really output production-ready code. Webflow outputs HTML, CSS, and JavaScript from a visual interface you can build totally custom designs without ever writing code. But that said, it's built with HTML and CSS fundamentals in mind. So all of the code that Webflow generates is clean, semantic, and developer-friendly. Agencies like IDEO and startups like Lattice are already using Webflow to empower their teams to build and prototype. And their rich animation and interaction tools allow you to add features like parallax, motion triggers, custom keyframe animations, and much more. Framework listeners should head over to wfl.io framework because Webflow is offering a limited number of 10% coupons for their annual plans. Use the code FRAMEWORK to get 10% off an annual plan right now. That's wfl.io slash framework with code FRAMEWORK. Webflow, the modern way to build for the web. All right, so jumping back into it, you mentioned on, recently on the Product Journey podcast that out of the gates, you saw a lot of use cases for the product come up that you didn't necessarily expect. How do you go about evaluating who's a fit as a customer or which case, which use cases kind of need to be accounted for in the product? Yeah, so we have the luxury of... <laughs> The asking like the first question we ask is is this a good fit for us mm-hmm. <laughs> so i mean part of the reason we didn't want to get into ads is it would add a bunch more complexity to the product and we started this company to serve us it's it's not and definitely to empower and serve customers but i don't want to be in a position where i have this company and i just don't like working on it and it's not giving me the things out of life that you know we kind of wanted in the first place. Mm-hmm. And so any you know there's definitely a a bunch of requests that we get that just don't fit what we want to build because it's not a good fit for the kind of life we want to live. And I think yeah, ads is a good we we at one point I had this idea for us to build a, another product called spots.fm and that was going to be an ad marketplace. Mm-hmm. And the more we explored that, the more it was like, oh, like that is going to require so much more human hours to just keep that machine running. Mm-hmm. Whereas right now, you know, there's there's little things to fix here and there. But if John and I want to take some time off, it's it's pretty easy for us to do that. We have a few folks that help us with customer support and so anything that kind of infringes on the margin that we have, not just financial margin, but margin for our time, for our mental health, if it doesn't fit that, then we don't want to be involved in it. Then there's a second filter, which is, is this something we want to contribute to the world? Is this a mindful use of technology? Is it going to be good for society? And yeah, so we have, for example, we haven't spent a lot of time on building any sort of integration with Facebook because uh, we don't like <laughs> Facebook uh, <laughs> and we just think it's like not, I don't know, it's it's just a crummy <laughs> ecosystem and platform. And so 
we can make those decisions and it probably harms us a little bit, but mm -hmm. overall, we just think it's contributing to a better society. It's contributing to more mindfulness for our customers and their listeners, and it's better for us. And then other than that, it's like, if it feels like something keeps coming up and we can see both sides of it. So it's something the customer wants. And then on our side, we can see it will actually get them what they want. <laughs> yeah. Like there's that perspective of, you know, people, again, the dynamic ads feature is such a good example because people were like so sure they needed that. Mm -hmm. And we're on the other side going, okay, but we've been in podcasting a long time. And we just know like most podcasts are not going to be best served by having advertisers. Mm -hmm. uh, there's other ways that they that folks can make some money with their podcast if they want to that are probably better fits. And so we'll kind of toe the line on that, you know, like it's like, okay, well, sometimes it's just we'll just recommend our competition if we think that's a better fit for people. Sometimes we'll try to communicate our rationale. And we're also just very careful about what we introduce to the product because we know anything we start, we're going to have to support. And it's very difficult to take things out. Like we have this YouTube integration that like we really wish we'd never put into the product, <laughs> but now so many people are using it and it's just, it's hard to take it away once it's there. And I, I think it's, that's actually a great example of just that, that feature, which allows it automatically posts your episode to YouTube as a, a video, but there's no visual. It's just, you know, the audio. It's just, a, it's, from what I've seen, like 90, I don't know, like 99% of the time, these videos get very few listens. It's a bad experience for a YouTube subscriber because they want to see video. And so when they see these audio clips in your stream, it like turns them off. Mm -hmm. It's just not a great fit. If you're going to post video, you should record the hosts recording the podcast and post actual dynamic video. It's There's a better way of doing it. Rather, you, you know, that's not that much more work, but, you know, people want it and... Yeah, so there's a, uh, it's, I think that's a, the hardest part about building products is that mm. people often buy and use products for emotional reasons. And even if there's a rational side that might say, well, you know, this isn't the best use of your time, it's, it's sometimes hard to argue with that. So there's probably a little bit of tension between those two things that we're always just kind of dealing with. And there's not a perfect way to deal with it. Our, I guess our way of dealing with it is we just wait as long as we can and we resist new ideas as much as we can and try to only build things that we feel are a good fit in a variety of ways. So maybe it's sort of alongside that topic is that obviously, you know, a transistor is a business and, you know, a, a whole lot of SaaS businesses make money, but not necessarily enough to be a sustainable job or, or to make a living at it. How, how slippery is that slope in terms of feeling like you're, you're just on the cusp. And I, you know, I, I saw that recently or, or relatively recently on the indie hackers podcast, you were mentioning like in, in the early days, certainly it was a, a little touch and go. Was it always your intention to, to self fund or did you think about funding or, or how did you approach sort of what your, your magic number was? Yeah, that's why the podcast is so interesting as an archive because yeah. in the early days 
so you know we launched we had we did an early access in february and then of 2018 and then launched august 2nd 2018 so just you know six seven months later and when we launched i was thinking okay if we double our early access we'll be at 1500 monthly revenue and you just realize wow this is going to take some time and i remember punching it into like a forecasting calculator and i was like well this might take five years and that was challenging for me in a financial sense and for john in a time sense so i came to transistor without a lot of savings without a lot of financial margin you know i've got four kids and a lot of bills and and that you know that was tough on me personally and by you can hear this in the podcast like around august september of that year i'm starting to flail a little bit you know that it the the feeling of like oh i'm working on an exciting new project has subsided and the reality of wow that mortgage still needs to get paid every month right <laughs> mm-hmm. and so that's when i was like starting to like really flail like oh maybe we should get investment and maybe we should launch another product and maybe you know we should i just all of these things like when when you're when you're desperate for money the the pattern is always the same you just like start grasping for any sort of way to make money right and it's it it all has the smell of desperation on it and so i was definitely doing that which is one reason like uh, it sucks because the more margin you have when you start a business like honestly if if you're going to self-fund it sure helps to have a lot of money in your bank account right Mm -hmm. It, it just does and some reason a lot of people end up raising money because they don't want to take that risk themselves there's a huge opportunity cost as well. Uh, Des from Intercom reached out to me and he's like, you know, you've got the financial piece, but there's also your your opportunity cost of you're investing some of your best productive years to this thing and you're hoping that it turns out. So that was challenging. I think what helped is at the time our numbers were public. And so we had all of these mentors and connections we'd made with you know, really great people that could look at our numbers and say, okay, well, you know what? You're actually on the right track. In my worst moments, I was like, <laughs> I was emailing all these people I was like, I'd made connections with like DHH from Basecamp and Jason Cohen. And, and the joke was like, when I get stressed out, I just email a bunch of millionaires <laughs> and just <laughs> see what, you know, <laughs> kind of whine to them. And it was, you know, a lot of them were, it's difficult to give advice in those situations because nobody really knows, but they were able to look at our fundamentals and say, you know what, this looks, the fundamentals here look good. Like you're growing and this is definitely, you should, if you can hold on, you should hold on. As opposed to, you know, if they looked at our numbers and said, oh, like this is, you know, uh, it was nice having some people that could look at our numbers and I knew would give me some really honest, brutal feedback. And I think all of them would have had no problems telling me it was a mistake to keep going. So that helped in those times, but it is hard in the beginning. Now, looking back on it, 
we're so glad we didn't raise money. <laughs> like just so glad we're beholden to nobody. Uh, we have no debt. We have no investors. We own a hundred percent of the company. And if you can make it over that threshold, it's always better to bootstrap always. Uh, unless I guess you're building something that's really capital intensive, but if the product and the market and everything aligns with bootstrapping and you can do it and you can get over that, that difficult stage, mm -hmm. it's always better to bootstrap, always. It gives you all the control, it gives you way more optionality. Like if someone came to us and said, hey, I wanna invest a million dollars in your company, we would have no idea of how to spend it. It's like, we, we can't spend the money we have right now, like in terms of like investing it back in the product, there's not like anything we really need to spend money on. And if we do need to spend money on it, we, we spend it. There's there's so much margin built into the business. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's not a, it's not a, a perfect answer in the sense that I can't be, you know, I can't tell you to just subscribe to the bootstrapping religion and <laughs> that you'll definitely, <laughs> you know, benefit positively from it because there's a lot of pain for a lot of founders. But for us, once we crossed that threshold, it was the right decision. Yeah. It, it, it seems like there's a lot more gray area built into the health of a SaaS business because, you know, you, you've done consulting before as Tom and I have done. And, you know, it's pretty clear if you don't get another customer, you know, for, for July, you're not going to be making any revenue. But with SaaS, you know, there there is that baseline of revenue that always kind of, I, I guess, could could leave you holding out hope that you're on the right track. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, I think if if that's not growing, that's the thing. Mm -hmm. Like, if you're looking at that number and it's it's staying flat or it's not growing fast enough, like Jason Cohen said, you know, in in two years, if you're not at 20K MRR, so 10,000 per founder, mm -hmm. uh, you might want to look at it, you know? Like, it's just, it needs to get you to some sort of baseline fairly quick. And I, I think, you know, there's this really popular talk called the long, slow SaaS ramp of death, <laughs> which has kind of been, it's a great talk. It's by Gail Goodman of Constant Contact. But the, as a mantra, it's like, ah, it, it, it leads people or de deludes people into thinking that, oh, well, this is just going to take a long time. It's going to be painful. And I think if you're bootstrapping, you want it to happen pretty quick, like relatively quick in the sense of within a few years, this should be showing some signs of health. And because again, the opportunity cost of your time and your energy is so valuable mm -hmm. and if you if you spend too much time on a bad idea then you know I, I i i just be careful about it and there's so many examples like taylor otwell the creator of the laravel framework you know he spends years kind of cultivating this open source framework and building up an audience and you know doing these conferences and by the time he launches his SaaS, he has all this fertile ground to plant the seeds in and you know he announced uh, Forge on stage, and there's about a thousand people in the in the audience. Well, he got a thousand customers that month. Mm -hmm. That was not slow. It was fast in the sense that it was gradual and then sudden. Like he he had all of this experience and all of the you know all of the groundwork had been laid 
but you do that before you start building the product. You know what I mean? Like that's the, that's the, that's the culmination of all of your life experience. That's, that's the ground that you're planting the seed in and the market, right? It's like, what's happening in the market? What's happened with my own experience? That's where you're planting the seed. And if, if that seed, you know, come harvest time hasn't produced, well, the ground isn't fertile, right? You're missing something, either your own experience or the market you've chosen or whatever. And so, you know, you wouldn't tell a farmer to like plant some seeds and if they don't grow <laughs> in a season, be like, well, I'll just wait, you know, maybe that something <laughs> will happen. It's like, no, if they haven't like, if they haven't sprouted in a season, you're in the wrong place. Like go find different ground. And so we, we, we've touched on, you know, MRR as the, the, the major uh, quantitative measure of, of the business. On, on the qualitative side, was there anything that you were really focused in on to assess your success? Yeah. What, what were you looking at there? I mean, for me, everything is qualitative. <laughs> so really the only metric we look at on, on you know, like metrics is, is like MRR and active customers. That's really kind of it. I look at how many podcasts we have on the platform, but the only one I'm really looking at every month is, is MRR going up? Is it going down? Is it growing? Is it, how fast is it growing? That's all I really look at. On the qualitative side, it's just everything else. You know, how, am I seeing a lot of transistor links out in the wild? You know, when I talk to people, what do they say about transistor? Have they heard of it? Uh, how many emails do I get from folks that are, you know, or customer s support messages do we get from folks that are like, oh yeah, I heard about it from this, or I've switched to you because of this. Those are the things I'm paying attention to every day. I get worried when our customer, like customer support is our, one of our biggest challenges. We get quite a few requests every day. And if I, but if it goes, you know, if it slows to a trickle, I get worried <laughs> because I, I want to see what's in there. Like, what are people exploring? What are people having a tough time with? What do they want? Like, why, why are they here? What brought them to Transistor today? And what, what underlying motivation was there, you know, to start a podcast? Yeah. And then just qualitatively what's happening in the industry. I'm a member of like, I don't know, like at least five or six Slack, different Slacks that I check fairly regularly, just because I want to see like what's bubbling in the, you know, in the ecosystem. What are people recommending without even being prompted to? What are the, the honest challenges folks are having? All that stuff is kind of out there and that's, yeah, that's me every day, just looking at it and and kind of mentally recording it or maybe jotting a note in my Apple Notes app or whatever. Of, oh, here's what I'm seeing. And oh, when I shared, like I, I've noticed, for example, like podcasters just want to be noticed. So if you if you put their show in your monthly newsletter, they're over the moon. Like they just... And for anyone to notice their show and recommend it is massive for them. Mm -hmm. And so we try to do that quite a bit. The same applies for listeners, actually. Uh, we, you know, we have a Patreon for Build Your SaaS. And 
initially we, we just did it to test that we have a little integration with Patreon. And I was surprised when people started signing up and I thought, oh, we're going to need to create all this extra content for them. And, and the truth was what, <laughs> what they wanted and that I noticed kind of through qualitative, like just measure is they just want us to mention them at the end of the show. And that became a part of the, just kind of a part of the, the culture of the show is that we do these shout outs at the end of the show and people hear the same names every week. And sometimes these people get recognized at conferences and stuff. Like that's the kind of yeah. stuff you kind of stumble on uh, through observation that you might not get from a survey or like by looking at your analytics. Yeah, I guess that that need for for distribution means that there's very little that happens in the podcast community in, in the shadows. You know, you can kind of see see all the activity in the industry out there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, folks are always asking questions publicly, and it's helpful in that sense for sure. I think people can still get there though in other product categories just by becoming a member of you know private Slack channels. You know. Me this is like when I'm at conferences, I sometimes like ask, like to ask people like, what like secret Slack and Telegram groups are you a part of? Because increasingly that's where, you know, people kind of converse in these back channels of the internet. And it's surprising, you know, how many of those are out there. And, you know, sometimes to get invited, you just say, hey, can I become a part of that? And, and then you're in there and you can observe, you know, what people are talking about and what they're recommending and the struggles they're having. Just to, to round things out as, as we're, I guess, thinking a bit more on, on the business side of things, obviously as, as a software as a service business, you know, you've got your sort of day-to-day -day focus on, on growth and so on, but how do you ensure you're thinking about or, or planning for the next more strategic phase of your business? How do you avoid staying two heads down? Part of it is that we just, we do move pretty slow. <laughs> we're, <Yeah. laughs> we're pretty chill now. We, we're not in a rush to fill our calendar. We're not in a rush to fill our backlog. We, you know, time and space really does give you perspective. Uh, there's there's like so many people over the years that I was so jealous of. And then you just let time elapse and you go, oh, wow, I really should not have been jealous of that person. You know, like <laughs> it, it just, it, it, it gives you perspective. And so I think by slowing down, that's helped us quite a bit. On the other hand, in some ways, this is something I'm struggling with is I have this feeling now that we've had some success, but I want to... I want to have some sort of hedge, you know, against the the possibility that things could go bad. And so in this time where we do have margin and we do have space, I'm thinking through like, okay, what should we, like, should John and I be investing in other companies? Should we start something else? Should we be like, should we be trying to figure out ways to take money off the table? There's all sorts of things i I think we're wrestling with right now. Yeah, I, I don't really have an answer for yet. And and strategic for Transistor is itself. I mean, podcasting has the advantage of it's never been a rocket ship sector. It's been growing pretty steady since, you know, for like two decades or something. There's not going to be 
anything super, even the things that people think are going to be super revolutionary, like, oh, we're going to have dynamically inserted ads. It's like, okay, you know, it, it probably isn't going to be a big deal. Uh, we thought Anchor was going to be a big deal, you know, offering free podcast hosting, and it didn't end up being a big deal. So I, I shouldn't say that I'm, I'm not concerned. Like I said, there's definitely things on the horizon I'm concerned about. And strategically, in terms of like what we want to add to the product, there's things we're, we're kind of letting simmer, but we're also trying to be slow with the, how we implement those things. I think if I have any sort of like anxiety about a strategic anxiety, it's thinking we're on a wave right now, but every wave eventually subsides or at least becomes you know less of a swell. And what are we going to do then? And in my mind, it's not, I don't think podcasting has that much more room, meaning like there's not going to be something that comes along that really changes the trajectory, the growth trajectory, you know, how much interest there is in the category. I think we're pretty much seeing that right now. Like this is kind of where it is. And maybe it'll be like blogging and blogging just keeps trucking along forever and people just keep starting blogs and you know that would be that would be great maybe it's more like i mean definitely if it if it becomes centralized then that will i think kill the category it, it, as far as we're concerned so that yeah i i'm more thinking like what is there outside of podcasting uh, or maybe adjacent to podcasting that we should be looking at. And the most recent example of, uh, of that for us was private podcasting. Yeah. So we, we've created uh, private podcasts that really automate a lot of the onboarding you would do with a private subscriber. And then the next phase of that is paid pri private podcasting. That's definitely a wave that we're seeing with Substack and Patreon and everyone else. And so, yeah, we're like, okay, well, that's an interesting, you know, kind of adjacent thing that we should be looking at strategically. Uh, again, we're not in a huge rush to build something super quick. It's like, okay, let's just kind of ease into this, get a feel for the water. If the water's good, we'll keep going. But long-term, I'm just thinking about, okay, <laughs> what should we do with the resources we have now to ensure that, you know, we're not, we're not wasting what we have is there something else we should be getting into now that's gonna you know plant some seeds now and have them uh, grow up next season that we can take advantage of that that's great i think that's a that's a really great sentiment to end it on there i, I appreciate you both kind of giving us the history of uh, of the product and how you've gotten to this state and then ending it off with a little look into the future so thanks so much for joining us today to talk through all this yeah, no, this is great. This is, uh, every interview is a little bit like therapy. <laughs> so I, it was really nice being able to yeah, hang out with you too. Awesome. And a big thank you to everyone out there for listening. If you're interested in starting a podcast or have an existing podcast that could use better hosting and analytics or uh, even some of those private podcasting features, check out Transistor at Transistor.fm. Framework is part of the Spec Network. That is a podcast network built to help designers and developers level up. And you can find a lot more shows like Framework over at spec.fm. Thanks to Drew Looper, who edits and helps to produce this show. And this one's for you, Justin. If you enjoyed this episode of Framework, help more listeners find the show by leaving a review or ratings on iTunes, or recommend the podcast to a friend. If you'd like to hear someone else's product story on Framework or tell your own, 
We'd love to hear from you and our contact details and Twitter handles are on our website, framework.is. We'll see you next time.